And I would suggest to you, you know, that really is born out of a core set of values and a sense of faith about the difference we can make in this world. Um, and you can see evidence of that over and over again, even in the midst of the turmoil that we're in now nationally, you can see goodness emerge and change start to emerge in the midst of violence um, and hatred. Um, and, and let's persist, work together, direct a clear sense of what we want to do to make a difference. And I think we can make that difference. Dr. Rudd, good morning. Good morning. Good to be with you. Yes, sir. Thank you for making time this morning. I know you've got a lot going on. Just curious, do you know of other university presidents that are a psychologist as well? Yeah, actually, there are a number of us. So uh, the president uh, at Yale uh, is a psychologist. Uh, the president, Maria Kelsey at uh, University of Washington uh, is a uh, is a clinical psychologist. There are a number of us actually nationally that uh uh, that keep in touch and, and have worked together over many, many years. And, um, you know, I, I do think one of the unique things about my background relative to others is that I was not an academic. So um, I had a military scholarship to go to school. And as a result of that, I had, uh, I had an obligation to serve in the military. Um, so I got an educational delay, went and got my degree in psychology. And then I actually served as a psychologist in the military for about five years um, before transitioning out. And then I was in practice for another uh, 10 years. And so I actually was a practitioner of, of clinical psychology for about 15 years. Can you talk a little bit about while you were at Princeton and you became fascinated with psychology? And then can you talk a little bit about the Marine Corps? Yeah, sure. Happy to. Yeah, so I was... Um, uh, you know, my, my interest in psychology really uh, came from, uh, like I think many students, it, it was uh, the fact that I developed a good relationship, a close relationship with a professor, uh, and that person was a psychologist, uh, and uh, actually, a, actually a couple of, of, of psychologists, um, and as a result, got very interested and, and invested uh, in pursuing psychology um, and ended up going that direction. Now, I served in the Army. My father served in the Marines. So my father uh, was an enlisted Marine uh, and served in Korea. Um, and then uh, after graduation, I, I went from, uh, from undergraduate uh, at Princeton, and, and I took what's called an educational delay. So I applied and got the military to delay my service time so I could get a degree. And so I got a, a PhD in psychology at the University of Texas, uh, transitioned out uh, back into the military, uh, and then served as the second armor division psychologist. So I actually ran a, um, it was called a medical service unit, a clinic, uh, and provided uh, psychology services directly to troops and over, oversaw the provision of those services, served during the Gulf War, transitioned out right after the Gulf War, um, and then, uh, and then got into uh, academics uh, peripherally uh, through Texas A&M. I was with the College of Medicine there for about ten years. What did you learn in the Army, being a psychologist, about how to to have that curiosity, how to create change, how to create improvement? But then also, the Army is you know rigid in protocols, stand, you know policies, et cetera. So you're kind of having to respect the system. And then also from an organizational standpoint, I mean, University of Memphis has close to a $500 million budget. So you're the head of a very large institution and organization. So how do you still have that curiosity and how do you try to create change? But then how is that learned to kind of like respect the system itself? Yeah. So, yeah. So one, I'm going to correct you. We're almost a $600 million. Wow. I, it, it was, it was 470 when we started. So I'm gonna, we're going to, we're going to, we have grown it. Uh, to six, about 575 million uh, as of yesterday. Awesome. Uh, yeah. It's, it's really good to see uh, that at the university. Well, I would tell you, look, this goes back, uh, you know, well in advance of my service in the military. But one of the things the military, I think, did was really help me. Uh, and I was young. So I, I went directly from undergraduate to graduate school, got a doctorate. So I had my doctorate at 26 and was commanding a unit at 26. And, and that's a very young age. 
uh, and certainly very naive perspective about leadership uh, at that time. But what I would tell you, what, what the military crystallized for me was an importance of a core set of values. Uh, I think one of, the, one of the great things about the American military um, is a clear identified set of values that allows people uh, it, to, to really direct what we do. Um, and so I think, you know, the idea of, of clear values, a clear statement of those values, why we do what we do, um, and then how do we do that in a way that serves uh, our community. So one of those core values in the military is service. Um, and I would argue that one of the things that we've done at the University of Memphis that's been effective over the last seven years uh, is we have clearly identified our values and we, we identify our values and one of those is a need to serve this community and to serve our students. We are here for students, uh, we exist for students, um, and we serve those students. And if you look at, um, I would argue, every step we've taken um, over, the, over the course of the last seven years has been directed uh, toward the success of our students and the success of our community. How do you preach that, teach that? How do you live that out kind of daily to influence and to teach and to keep the organization moved in the direction that you feel like resembles those values? Like, what does that look like in a very granular way? Well, I think it, uh, you know, in a, in, a, in a really granular way, one of the things that we have uh, our leadership team, um, and so if you go uh, into the room next to this, which is our meeting uh, room, uh, conference room for the president's council, you'll find on the wall, um, in that room, a statement of values. And so it is a statement of here are our core values. Um, everyone recognizes those and everyone signs those. Um, and when we make decisions, we reflect on those. And so I think it, part of it is making sure those are at the forefront of every decision and every difficult decision we make. Um, but also, uh, you know, at a very granular level, it's about hiring people that are de dedicated to the mission of an institution. So if you look at um, over, the, over the last seven years, our growth, so I'd mentioned our budget has grown to almost 600 million. When I started, it was about 472 million. Uh, a part of that is we've hired people that have been dedicated to this mission. Some of that growth has been in research and, and we talked a little bit uh, over the last year or so about our uh, effort to achieve Carnegie One status. We think we'll do that. Uh, in the coming year. Um, and we've hired people that have been dedicated to the teaching and research mission of this university, recognizing that we put our students, and that means undergraduates and graduate students, at the forefront. And as a result, we have been increasingly successful, um, and we've been able to move the organization. With your key people or the decisions that you're involved with, what kind of approach or how do you think about really trying to understand as clearly as possible if the people that you're looking at bringing on resemble those values? How do you handle that to really get into, to really get clarity in trying to seek that out? Yeah, that's a great question. I, you know, I think a part of it is just simply uh, making sure that we have conversations with people uh, and that we understand their perspective and we understand um, you know, how they view higher education and how they view the role of an institution uh, like the University of Memphis in this community. I mean, if you look at what we do, we do so many more things than educate. I mean, we, we are a, a large uh, and influential uh, entity in Memphis. Um, a lot of what happens in Memphis uh, is connected to this university. And, and, and a lot of that is driven around what are our priorities and, and We've made community service a part of that. We've gotten more, and as a result, what you've seen is a drive for us to be more involved in, higher, in, in education, K through 12 education in Memphis. So we now have a deep relationship with Shelby County Schools. Uh, Dr. Joris Ray has done an excellent job. We've got a, a wonderful relationship uh, with, with those individuals. We've been involved uh, in workforce development. Uh, in Memphis. And so you, you see much stronger relationships in terms of uh, how we relate to the employers in Memphis. So we, we have been much more direct, much more specific, and I would argue much more concrete. I mean, we have concrete examples of, of how we serve this community and the difference that we make. Can you share anything about 
cognitive behavior in your studies at the Beck Institute with just how that aspect of psychology works and then how you've learned how to maybe take constructive feedback or navigate setbacks or adversity, but then still have a forward-thinking mindset because, you know, all the results, which I've got three pages of results, and there's a lot more of all the things that you've done at the university, and we're going to get into some of that. But I'm just curious from a leadership standpoint, how do you maintain optimism and confidence while also just understanding like that it's life and things happen and we don't always make the right decisions or certain things just don't go the way we plan? Yeah, well, yeah, it's a great, uh, it's a great question, and I think you framed it uh, really well. Well, I think one is just recognizing you're right; it's life. I mean, uh, life is difficult, and you look back. I would argue we've had a, a really nice run and done some good things, but these are these are difficult uh, uh, jobs, and and it has not been an easy process. And, and you look at every single step that we've taken. Um, arguably, uh, you know, there are probably two characteristics I would encourage. Uh, that uh, are really critical in these jobs if you're going to lead any institution, uh, but particularly uh, during challenging times. And one of those is to be hopeful and optimistic. And I'm just innately hopeful and optimistic. Look, I provided clinical care for 15 years on a full-time basis. And then after that, did it on another, did it on a part-time basis for another 10 years while I was a faculty member and a dean. And I ran a clinical training program. And one thing I know is people are people period. Uh, At any and every level of our society, we are all very much the same. We all need very much the same things, just in different different amounts. Uh, We just balance it a little differently based on our personality, based on our personal history. But there are some very basic things about being human. Um, And I think it's important to understand that. And and one of those is that people get frustrated, people get angry, uh, and and people express their pain and anger. And that is not a bad thing. You can look back over the course of of my time as president at the University of Memphis, and I would tell you one of the most productive things we ever did um, was we hosted a town hall about sexual assault on our campus in which people were really angry. Um, and upset, and they should be angry and upset, and express that. And and I would also tell you that, um, you know, as a clinical psychologist, people ask me that that meeting went on for several hours to almost three hours. Was that uncomfortable? No. It, what what was uncomfortable was the pain that was being expressed, um, and recognizing and understanding that. But that led to very constructive change on our campus. As a result of that, we've had a number of student groups that have embraced their role in education, prevention, and then support, assistance, and treatment. And we've had two very active student groups that have developed programs, been actively involved in supporting one another. I would argue we've never had more constructive, positive movement as a result of people being angry and upset and hurt, but let's find a way to direct that in a constructive way to get movement and to make things happen. Um, And being optimistic and hopeful and recognizing that that optimism and hope is born in a perspective about the humanness of all of us. And then the other thing I would tell you is you gotta be persistent. Look, one of the things I don't do is quit. And, And I am remarkably persistent um, and, and I would argue that, that hope, optimism, and persistence can, can do a lot of good things in this world, uh, particularly during difficult times. Do you think there's a, a strong reason why you're able to be so persistent is because you believe that you found a way of service and work that truly interests you and that drives you? Or do you think that persistence could be, be applied to, you know, to other things as well? Well, I think for all of us, we have a, a it, we have a core set of values, and 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 a part of my perspective and faith in life uh, is that we're here to make a difference and make a constructive, positive difference. Um, and I believe that the role that I'm in uh, is a service role, um, and uh, that that's important to serve this community, serve these students, our faculty, our staff. And in in Memphians and Tennesseans, and that's what we do. And and I would suggest to you, you know, that really is born out of a core set of values and a sense of faith about the difference we can make in this world. Um, and you can see 
evidence of that over and over again. Even in the midst of the turmoil that we're in now nationally, you can see goodness emerge and change start to emerge in the midst of violence um, and hatred. Um, and, and let's persist, work together, direct a clear sense of what we want to do to make a difference. Um, and I think we can make that difference. Can you talk about from a leadership standpoint, maybe what you were working on at the time, and then maybe what things changed or how you pivoted with the sexual assault issue and incidents that were happening, but then how you had empathy, how you understood what was going on, how you you listened and connected with any individual involved, but then how you actually took action and then how you led to create improvement and work with certain people that you kind of identified on campus to actually solve the issue or improve it significantly. Yeah, absolutely. I, you know, I think part of it is, uh, you know, part of our role is to understand and, uh, and to listen. Uh, and I don't think you can understand without listening. So a, a big part of what we did about that issue, and we continue to do that. And by no means are we beyond that issue. That issue will always be a struggle and a challenge in our society. And our campus is just a microcosm of broader society. But we will continue to listen, try to understand, recognize what those needs are. We recognize what those needs were. We had a number of students that actively reached out, invested, um, and ultimately created some core infrastructure uh, that has made the process healthier, better, more effective for us. Um, and we will continue to do that and continue to be committed to that. That doesn't mean that everyone is satisfied with where we are and what we've done but we'll continue to persist and make progress. So when those things started to happen, I guess you were directly involved as far as the accountability goes in making sure that those programs and initiatives and changes got to the finish line. Sure. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, accountability is one of our core values and that starts with me. Uh, and I've always believed that, always will. Uh, and and we will evidence that in the decisions that we make. And, and we, have, we have been... Uh, fully transparent about our data and outcomes and what we're doing. Uh, and I think that the only thing we can do is, is take a step, implement it, and then monitor it, report on it, respond to it, and show people where there is progress and what is the evidence of that. And if we're not making progress, to reevaluate and to try to better understand how we can make progress. I'm very much, as I mentioned, I'm a, a clinician by training and very much a clinical scientist and believe in empirical evidence and, and, and data uh, to support and, and discuss and demonstrate uh, what we do and how we do it and whether or not it's working. Where did you really develop a heart for service or a mindset? Because I've, you've already, in our conversation, you've talked about why you exist and why the university exists for the students. And that may sound like, you know, very kind of common and given, but not everybody does that. And not everybody does it to the extent that I would argue that you do. And like an example would be the way you opened up flows of communication and being accessible, like through Twitter, like even just being an alum, I saw how, you know, somebody would complain about the air and like the psychology building or wherever, and you're like responding to it and it's getting fixed. And then people are like, wow, he actually is reading this. So can you just talk a little bit about maybe where your heart of service came from and then how that continued to kind of become maybe, you know, stronger or whatever that looked like throughout your career? Yeah, absolutely. I, you know, look, I, I, like many of us, you know, my life has been an interesting one. And, and, um, I started working, um, stocking shelves and mopping floors at age 16. Uh, and I worked all the way through high school. I worked in the evenings, uh, and went to school in the day and, and, and uh, I played football back then. And, and because of some really good people in my life uh, that reached out um, and offered a hand, I ended up with an opportunity to go from a low-performing public high school uh, to Princeton. Um, that would never have happened if somebody hadn't reached out and helped me. Um, and I certainly didn't have the, 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 the family um, and the social connections and influence um, to be able to, to, to make that kind of a connection. But, but people reached out and helped me. Uh, and then when I went to Princeton and I worked and, and I actually worked in the kitchen and washed dishes and, and, um, uh, and worked in the faculty dining facility and, and worked all the way through my experience there. And then I went into the military 
Um, and I would tell you that my commitment to service is really born out of the fact that people have helped me. And I understand the difference it made in my life and that it's made for my family and my children. Um, and that all of us, I believe, have a debt that we need to that we need to pay to society in general. And that comes in the form of service, that we are a part of a community. We need to find ways to give back and to be a living part of that community. And uh, if we will all do that, this will be a better place. I, I by no means will be perfect, but it'll be a better place and a better place to live. And I think you see that in Memphis. Uh, Loretta and I and, and our family are, are deeply connected to Memphis. Um, and we think you see that on a daily basis. And I think in the in the current turmoil, you see that, that, that with the upset and the outrage that is, that is appropriate and rightful, um, it has been managed, I would argue, remarkably well as a community. Um, and I think we'll find constructive steps that we can take as a result. When you took over the University of Memphis, there was a $20 million deficit in the annual budget, correct? Uh, $23 million. And you solved that very quickly. And also, prior to you taking over as president of the University of Memphis, tuition had risen, what, 8% the previous year? It, well, it had actually the average uh, tuition increase over the previous 15 years. So the average increase on an annual basis uh, for 15 years was almost 8.4%. Per year? Per year. That's correct. And you said early on that you're going to stop that. And then you also said that inflation may cause it to rise 2 or 3%, but I don't think that's happened. Is that correct? It has not. No, we actually, as of, so yesterday we had a board meeting and we approved our budget uh, moving uh, into the next fiscal year. Uh, so we will not have a tuition increase this year. It'll be zero, um, appropriately so. It'll be the fourth time in seven years that we've had no tuition increase. Um, and the average over the seven years is 1.5%. That is um, the lowest in the state of Tennessee by a very large margin. Um, and I would encourage you is precisely why we're here. Now, what the, the really good thing about that is because we have grown our revenue has grown. I, you know what's interesting is when you do the right things, good things seem to happen. And we have done the right things, and I think good things have happened. We have grown. So our budget, rather than being at $472 million or so seven years ago, is now this year at almost $600 million. Um, and that's a function of growth in many different ways for the university while we've been containing costs at historic levels and meeting the needs of our students. So, and, and the thing to remember, and I tell all of our leadership team to remember this, we are successful when our students are successful. And I would tell you our students have never been more successful than they are right now. And I just shared some information yesterday that we created a tuition cap last year uh, that tuition cap, if you take, if you, you don't pay tuition beyond 12 hours. So if you take 50, you take more than 12 hours at the undergraduate level, if you're a Tennessee resident, all of that's free. If you're a graduate student and you take more than 10 hours, anything above 10 hours is free if you're a Tennessee resident. Last year, we gave away more than 58,000 free credit hours. That's amazing. And our tuition revenue went up. And that's because we are meeting the needs of our students. And so we're going to continue to focus on that. We're going to continue to have that as a core value and to recognize its importance and understand that is why we exist uh, as an institution. And we're going to keep focused on that. What would you tell a high school student that's a Memphian, and this could apply elsewhere, but let's say they're just they have an excellent academic track record, and they have an opportunity to go to an elite university, such as one that you attended or others, and then they also have the opportunity and interest in, in the University of Memphis. What would you tell them about how their experience could compare and what they should think about, and how would you argue that Memphis should be the place that they should go? Uh, well, let me share a couple of things with you, uh, and then I'll share a personal story uh, with you as well. Uh, one, um, I would 
tell any student that you can go anywhere and do anything from Memphis. So you can get as high a quality undergraduate education at Memphis as anywhere in the country. Uh, and I, I've been at five institutions. The other four institutions that I've been at are top 50 uh, institutions nationally. Um, and the education is as good or better here as any of those institutions. Um, and you can do that at dramatically reduced cost. So you can do that far more efficiently. And for all of us, the trajectory in terms of professional development is from undergraduate to graduate school to professional school, and you can go anywhere in the country from this platform. We've had plenty of students that have gone from here to Yale to Harvard uh, to some of the most elite graduate schools and professional schools uh, in the country, um, and you can accomplish that right here. Um, and you can do it with a group of people that care about you, will support you along the way, um, and you can do it in a remarkably diverse environment, in a remarkably diverse community, and all of the strength that that diversity brings. Now, let me just quickly share with you a personal story. So before Loretta and I moved to Tennessee, our son was at Vanderbilt. So one of the reasons I was interested in the job here originally as provost was our son was a student at Vanderbilt. And so uh, ultimately, we took the job. Uh, came to Tennessee, uh, and Nicholas was at Vanderbilt. Nicholas's second year at Vanderbilt, he developed a medical issue uh, that was a pretty serious one and had to come home and have a surgery and uh, a series of surgeries and then recover. And so when he came home, he spent at the University of Memphis. Um, and what's great about that is no one knew who he was. So no one knew that he was my son. No one knew that uh, Nick was, uh, was um, uh, our son. And uh, he had a better experience at Memphis than he had at Vanderbilt. And I'm here to tell you the cost of one year at Vanderbilt is more than the entirety of your education at Memphis. When you say better experience, what do you mean by that? He had a better educational experience in terms of contact with professors, the ability to develop relationships with professors. And one of the things he did, this is just fascinating, one of the things he did uh, is he took Japanese uh, at, at Memphis. Uh, he had always had an interest in the culture and wanted to take the language, and he took it when he came here. Uh, he ultimately became fluent in Japanese when he went back to Vanderbilt, he stayed in touch with the program here. He ended up doing a year in Tokyo um, and spending time overseas, ended up being one of the best experiences of his life. And today he is in law school. He finished a master's at the University of Texas LBJ School, and uh, he was doing a, a MPA, JD program. He's now uh, starting his second year of law school at the University of Texas um, this coming August. And to this day, when he applied to those schools, he got, he got letters of, of support from faculty at Memphis because he had better relationships. They were available, accessible, and he was able to build relationships unlike he could build at Vanderbilt because of the nature of how major research and elite universities function. The faculty sometimes are less available. And so I would tell you, those are good reasons. We've experienced it personally as a family. Um, and I can tell you as a student who, uh, you know, studied at Princeton, there are things that you can get uh, here that will rival that experience. The difference at a large university like us is you have to work a little harder to make that happen. When you're at a smaller university, you don't have to work as hard to get that experience because there aren't as many people. Uh, but you can get that here, and, and from a financial perspective, it's an incredibly uh, smart move. I, we are a great value as a university. You know, how have you been able to move such a large organization very quickly and then also get the best out of your team and people to do more with the same amount of costs and et cetera? Well, I would, I would tell you uh, this, the, what you said at the end that's the most important, it's a team. And so one of the things we've done is we've got the right people in the right positions, and then we empower them to do what they do. 
Um, so one of the things we have done, I think that that is is most effective, um, is that that uh, and I appreciate the kind words, but I would tell you a lot of people uh, have worked incredibly hard to make this happen um, and to get this kind of movement. And what we've done is we've empowered those people at the local level, and so we've provided access, transparency, data to help them make the best decisions. I don't know how to run the Department of Biology, but I know if we get a good person to run the Department of Biology and we empower them to do it, that they'll do a good job. And we've got clarity and understanding about what the values are of the organization and that they put those at the forefront and then we let them do their jobs. So a lot of what we've done is empower people, put the right people in the right places give them what they need to be successful. And that's a big part of my job. I mean, a big part of my job is resourcing the university to make sure people have what they need uh, and then provide them the support. And that doesn't mean from time to time, we don't have to deal with issues. We're like any institution, we've got to deal with issues, but not being afraid to stand up and deal with those issues. I, if you look back over the course of um, you know, the time that I've been in Memphis, I would tell you that the one thing I would argue and argue pretty vigorously is that I don't, I'm not afraid to deal with issues. And that goes back to from the very beginning of my tenure with the John Calipari thing. And, um, you know, I have not been afraid to stand up and say, this is important. We're going to do this um, and take heat for it. Um, and, and when we're doing the right thing, we'll stand up and take heat for it. Does the thought of issues coming down the road, does that make you uneasy or anxious? Like, are you fearful knowing just the way the world works, the way humans work, systems work, that there's going to be issues? But does that future, like, kind of impending, you know, thought, does that disturb you? Or do you feel like you kind of take it on when it comes? How have you learned to think about that just through you and your own self? Well, you know, I would, I'd say a couple of things. Uh, one, uh, it's the job. I mean, my job is to deal with problems. Period. I, you know, and I tell people that all the time, you know, in our leadership team that uh, we are paid to deal with problems. Uh, and if, if institutions and entities like ours did not have problems, we probably would not have jobs. They could run themselves. Uh, so our job is to do that. So I very much, that's my job. That's why I'm paid. Um, and that's why I'm here is to address these challenges and problems. And there will always be. I, look, I've been doing this for a long time in higher ed. There will all, every day, there will be a new challenge. And I really view them as challenges, frankly. It's, it's really the challenge in the nature of an opportunity. And embedded in each and every one of those is opportunity. Um, the other thing I would add is it entirely is about perspective. Um, and look, I served in the, in the military during wartime, during the Gulf War. Um, and um, that gives you great perspective. I was an active clinician full-time for almost 15 years, and I dealt with the most severe kinds of psychiatric illness um, uh, that you could imagine. And that gives you perspective. Uh, one of the events that shortly after the Gulf War that I intervened uh, with as a clinician was the Luby's Massacre in Colleen. That gives you perspective. And so I always reach back to those experiences to give perspective to what we're dealing with currently. Um, and, um, you know, I've been through some uh, very significant events in, in our lifetime, and, and uh, that helps inform how we think about and deal with where we are today. Have you ever hit seasons of just potential burnout or just exhaustion where you feel like you couldn't stop or you had so many things going on? Or, I mean, what's that looked like in your own life? I mean, does that not relate? No, it does. I know absolutely. I, you know, one of the things about these jobs is that they are um, they are tiring, uh, and uh, you know you you've got to find ways to break. And now, one of the things that I do that that uh, you know I think people actually uh, wonder why I do it. Um, I actually uh, still uh, do research and writing um, in my area. Um, and you know, one of the things you're not aware of, you may become aware of it. Later on, I haven't shared it, um, a, a group that I work with out of Yale, uh, we developed a, um, I do research on treatment uh, with suicide attempters. And, and one of the things we did is we took our empirically informed and validated treatment in the last several years and developed a phone app that does the treatment. Um, and that phone app is now being launched nationally. 
to drive uh, care through a number of health plans. One of our uh, partners is Blue Cross Blue Shield. And I do those things because it connects me back to what I started with and what was important uh, for me at a very personal level. Um, and that's clinical care and in and, and, um, and, and looking at mental illness um, and uh, in mental health nationally. And so I'm still very connected to that. And and frankly, that's a nice relief from these other challenges uh, that we address. How many hours a week do you spend on that? Oh, I do probably pretty consistently um, in the ballpark of 10 to 15. Wow. How have you learned how to manage your time? Um, well, I, the military was really helpful. Uh, so, you know, it, it, I, now I will tell you, I don't waste a lot of time. So, you know, I... Um, one of the things I do, and I'm, I'm a pretty blunt guy. Um, so if you correspond with me, uh, by email and, and other means, sometimes people misunderstand that I don't write, um, real long responses. I get a lot of emails on a daily basis. And sometimes, you know, you can ask my chief of staff and she'll tell you my response is one word. Um, and so I manage, um, things by being focused. Um, so I don't waste a lot of time. Um, I'm very much focused on what I need to get done. Um, and I do that because I like to spend time with my wife and family, uh, when I've got some free time. Um, but I'm very focused on what I do and, and I don't, when I write things, I don't spend a lot of time editing and debating. Um, I tend to write very quickly, uh, review it, edit it and, uh, move forward with it and not, uh, to be trapped in 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 a process of indecisiveness. So, um, so we we you know I think over the years uh, one of the things I've learned is how to be efficient uh, in how I spend my time, and as a result, it 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 allows me to juggle quite a few things. I guess this article came out a couple of years ago. I couldn't find the date, but you're quoted saying that you're going to keep the physical population. The university is going to keep the physical population at 22,000 students, but our U of M global online program is going to double its size. And I think there's a lot of things to talk about here as much as you're willing to share. I think it was incredibly innovative on your end. I also feel like it makes a lot of sense from an economic standpoint, scalability, technology, et cetera. But all this stuff was pre-COVID. I don't know how many years ago exactly this article was written, but can you talk a little bit about your vision for that, how you started to focus on that. And then, you know, this season that we're in with all these uncertainties that you're having to navigate as a president of a university, it sounds like to me that just kind of falls in line. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Actually, I, I'm glad you pointed it out. I, I would tell you it's probably the best decision we make. Um, and, and so uh, let, me, and let me explain that. Uh, that's about four years ago. So it's almost four years ago that we started U of M Global. Um, so I have served at every level of the university. So I've been a, I've been a faculty member. I've gone through, been tenured. I've been a department chair. I've been a dean, provost, and now a president. So I would argue, you know, I really know how a university works. Uh, universities are interesting places. Uh, in order to get things done, you have to know how the system works uh, if you want to implement change. And one of the things that was critical that, that when we started U of M Global was understanding that we needed to do that internally. And so Dick Irwin has led that effort with Tom Neenan and Karen Weddle West, and they've done a magnificent job. The reason we needed to do it internally is because of quality, that, that it's about construction and in order to have impact. Uh, that was really critical for us. And so we retained the right to do that, built U of M Global. But what a lot of people didn't know is one of the motivators for that is there was a program called Tennessee Online. So our old system, TBR, the Tennessee Board of Regents had an online division where they offered online courses, gen ed courses, and managed it. And that was going to go out of business. And they gave us about two years advance notice. And so one of the things we did was immediately recognize how critical that was, not only for our educational growth, but for our revenue. Um, and so we started building U of M Global. And I want to tell you, it's a pretty stunning number. 17% of the entirety of our enrollment is U of M Global. Oh. And the growth, the single fastest growing unit 
at the university in the last three years has been U of M Global. And as you might imagine, the growth right now in U of M Global has been exponential. Um, and so we will, we will see that continue to grow uh, over the course of the coming couple of years uh, in particular. So I've heard you talk a lot about branding and, you know, here you corrected me, but the budget was 480 million when you took over and now it's close to 600 million. I mean, there's a lot in athletics we could talk about. There's a lot in just a lot of different areas, but what does that mean for you and your team regarding branding? So now that you can scale and grow U of M global to the number that y'all are shooting for. Yeah, what, you know, one of the things we did, the, the branding piece is critical. And so, uh, you know, we consolidated communication six years ago. Uh, it was a controversial thing when we did it. I don't know if you remember when we came up with the, the U of M brand column uh, that we launched six years ago that now people assume has always been there. It was not there. We created it. Um, the university used to use a... Um, an academic symbol that was not effective because it wasn't memorable. Um, so if you look at every major public university in the country, so if you go and look at every R1 university in the country, they have two symbols. They have an academic symbol and an athletic symbol. And so the only recognizable symbol for the University of Memphis was the Leaping Tiger, and which is fabulous. But the problem is it really brands the university as an athletic entity and not an academic one. So six years ago, we created uh, the U of M column that you now see everywhere that we use as an academic symbol. And I will tell you, it's been highly effective. People assume it's always existed now because it's been around long enough, but it is arguably as recognizable as the leaping tiger that, that it, it helps enhance academic credibility for the university, we moved in to the top public university rankings for U.S. News and World Report in the top 130 um, last year. And that has been a, a, a long, steady climb. I would tell you that the academic quality of the university has always been excellent. It's just not been recognized. And so we needed a vehicle to do that. Part of that was that branding campaign and then as a part of the branding campaign, we consolidated all communication centrally. So we didn't have 50 different entities communicating. We now have one. And I think you've seen over the last four years in particular how much better that's worked. It's been far more effective. It's branded us much better. If you would pull up our number of, of ranked programs, we have a page on the university webpage for ranked programs. We've never had this many ranked programs. It's about visibility. It's about leveraging athletic visibility to share academic stories. And as a result, having people understand the university so that they can rank it. Um, and that's what we've done. It really is about visibility and recognizing who we are. From a human needs perspective, and thinking about online education, U of M Global University, how would you teach or talk about transitioning more to an online, you know, learning education through monitor recorded classes, et cetera, versus the kind of human experience of the emotional side of it and, and kind of being in the classroom, et cetera. How does that just affect different students depending on how they learn best? And then how do you see that being a factor with just the plans and priorities of U of M Global University? Yeah, I think, you know, one of the things that uh, I think there are a couple of things. Uh, one is that this uh, COVID-19 has taught us that um, people really want to have contact with other people. A lot of the face-to-face -face and interpersonal interaction, informal interaction is a critical piece of the experience. Um, people may not have recognized and understood how profound that was. They do now. Um, and two, you can build that in at some level online, but not entirely. And so we have worked, actually, we moved all of our support services to virtual environment. So not just, uh, you know, courses, we moved uh, health services, we moved advising services. And I, I will share with you that our advising utilization has never been higher. It's actually the highest it's been. And a part of that is access, that, that the fact that we didn't have it online 
limited access because students had to get off work, they had to travel, they had to do other things that took inordinate amounts of time. So we're going to do, one of the lessons we've learned is we're going to keep some advising services online after this is over. And so we, I think, have learned on both ends that human, human contact is critical. People need to have contact with one another. But there are things we can transition online for support that really help students that have a lot of demands or working excessive hours um, and need to have access simplified. So what you're saying is you're providing the relational and the communal aspect of online, you know, counseling, et cetera, advising. And that's kind of the other piece that will really help retention and progress and growth for the student. Yeah, I think so. Absolutely. I, and, and it's a unique variant of, of how we do what we do online. I think that's a critical part. Yeah, well, well put. I read a little bit about just some things that you talked about when Penny Hardaway was hired and talked about a little bit with some decline in the with the basketball budget and donations, et cetera. You know, I think one of the things that's very clear about your leadership is you're very hands-on, but then you've also talked about how you really want to hire the best people you can and empower them, support them, and let them continue to build out their part of the university. Can you talk a little bit about like when major changes are made within athletics, how to get involved and how you know how to respect the leaders that you have in place, but then to also kind of move things in the direction that you want them to be moved because ultimately it feels like you have a lot of pride of the overall health and success of the university itself. So from a leadership standpoint, can you talk about how you've learned how to handle somewhat complex, maybe like relationships or choices, et cetera? Yeah, sure. I, you know, it's, look, the, the reality of it is, um, uh, and I tell people this all the time, you know, if you'll do your job, I'll support you, provide you resources, uh, and, and, and do whatever I can to help make you successful. Uh, it, and I'll, you won't hear from me very often unless you want to, uh, unless you reach out. If you're not doing your job, it then becomes my job. Uh, so a part of my job is holding people accountable at the senior level. And when we have significant problems that become a broader problem for the university, uh, it is absolutely my job, regardless of what other people think. Uh, at the end of the day, I have, a, I have a responsibility to manage this campus. And when people are not filling their roles, to hold them accountable. Um, that is a part of leadership. And sometimes it's controversial. Sometimes it upsets people uh, for many different reasons, many of them just political. Um, but ultimately, that becomes my responsibility. So when the basketball program was uh, losing massive amounts of money uh, and not fulfilling its obligation, it was going to impact the broader university. It was no longer an athletic problem. When you're calling me and asking me to find $14 million for you, it is no longer an athletic problem. Uh, it is a broader university problem. Um, and at some point, it became, it, it, it became painfully clear what needed to happen, uh, that we were not going to be successful, that we were going to, from just a financial perspective, not, not, not and, and, and again, I would argue it was for the health of the program, that the program... I uh, had become so inactive and had lost so many supporters uh, that it was in jeopardy of being permanently damaged. That's independent of the finances. You, you layer the finances on top of it, and this is a very simple decision. I had somebody ask me uh, when I made the decision, was it a hard decision? No, it's actually one of the easier decisions. It's actually implementing the change that becomes difficult. Um, and so the reality is that program was in desperate need of change and uh, in, invigoration uh, and ultimately financial stability. And we made a move and, and that happened. Um, and it has been reinvigorated um, and is financially stable and supportive um, and has made, I think, very significant, meaningful steps. Uh, in a two-year period. I don't know that you could find a more significant turnaround uh, in two years than where it is today. And it doesn't mean we haven't had difficulty. Of course, we've had difficulty. Everybody does. But it has had a, a, a significant shift in a brief period of time. Since you started, you've grown the top-line revenue of the university. And I don't want to be too like capitalistic the way I say that. But 
from what we've talked about today, 20%, close to $100 million, you know, approaching $600 million you've launched or continuing to launch and build, you know, a global university online. Uh, you've improved, you know, just the, the academics, the rankings and lots of different departments across the board. You've created so much change and growth athletically with facilities, on-campus facilities. I mean, just all these things. I'm curious, what are you kind of focused on the next three to five years now? I mean, with the things that you've already and your team have accomplished, regardless of where we're at because of COVID-19, what are you thinking about now over the next three to five years? And then can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I can. Um, and then I've got, I think I'm going to have to leave you. I've got another, I've got another issue at 10 o'clock. So I may have to leave you here uh, after answering this uh, question. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I, I think the, the goal for the university uh, is the most prominent goal right now is to achieve Carnegie One status um, and to, to move into the top tier of major research universities in this country. We think we are well positioned to do that and we will achieve that. And then the, the goal becomes sustainability of that. How do we sustain that with adequate financial support at the state level, privately, uh, and, um, uh, and uh, in terms of our own internal Related to that, we will launch a new campaign. So we'll launch a new endowment campaign in the coming year. Um, and it'll be focused around that core initiative for the University of Memphis. Those are the most prominent uh, to position this university as a top-tier public research university. Uh, and then to continue to strengthen the academic base of the university as a whole and to continue to provide and expand support for our students. Um, and we think we can do that. Uh, the university has made great strides. We think that's the next logical step. We think we're in a good position to achieve it. Uh, we are very much empirically data-driven, uh, and the data suggests that we're, uh, we're are close to that uh, level. Uh, and then when we achieve it, we're going to have to sustain. Yes, sir. Well, thank you so much. I know you got to go. It's been a great, just a great time talking with you. Thank you so much for all of your service, uh, your time this morning. And just everything that you do. Hey, thank you. I really appreciate it and appreciate the thoughtful questions and happy to talk with you anytime. Thank you, Dr. Rudd. Thank you. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. I hope you learned at least one thing today that you can apply to your own life. If you like the show, please make sure and leave a review and be sure to tune in each week as I'll be releasing a new episode. Hope you have a great day. Bye.